Blog Talk Radio. to be on the show today. Please do excuse me because I have a bad cold. Mr. J. Logan, we have special guest Eric Alker, international journalist, music journalist, radio host, PR specialist, amazing man from thatericalper.com, writes for Pace Magazine, Billboard, you name it. We're going to talk with him about music, the arts, and youth today. Then we have J. Ivey international writer, poet, author. He has been on Death Poetry Jam. He has written for Martha Stewart, believe it or not, hip-hop poet, Jay-Z. He's the one that gave John Legend his name. I mean, we could go on. The guests we have today are unreal. (coughs) You will have to bear with me with my cold today. I am super, super, super excited, super elated. Jay and I are also going to talk at the end of the program about Microsoft's hologram and Oculus. So just know that the show is starting off on a good one. We've not been on since uh, December, and uh, we just thank the United Nations for allowing us to broadcast with them. And um, we are just really, really excited about this year. You have no idea. Um, Just to give you a few things that have, occurred over the last year, and we're going to get right into the show as we're running two minutes behind. We have done some work with Hadiza Bala Uzman, who we've had on the show, with the 200 Chibok girls during the march with Alicia Keys. Um, we've also done work on The Good Lie with Margaret Nagel, who we've had on the show many times, with Reese Witherspoon, and that's about the three people from uh, the Sudan. And the three people who've come over from the uh, Sudan to the States and what life was like for them. And Reese Witherspoon was in that movie, along with Emmanuel Jahl, who we've had on the show, Margaret Nagel, the writer and producer behind the show, who's a very well-known Hollywood writer, uh, Kuth Weil, who was actually from Sudan, as well as Emmanuel Jahl. Emmanuel Jahl is a humanitarian. And it's not about the who's who. It's about what these people have experienced that is so important. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on Mr. Jay Logan so we can bring on Eric Alper, who's also holding for us. So let's start with Jay. Mr. Logan, how are you? So good to hear your voice. Hi. Hey, Gail. I'm doing great out here in Japan. I'm like 10,000 miles away from you, but um, it's wonderful out here, and we're having a great time. Uh, hanging with Japanese uh, people and culture. You know, and over here hanging with the United Nations and culture and people all over the world. So as you know, Jay and I can be anywhere at any time 
you know, I've been in London and France and, and Italy and Jay's been in Japan and we've been in London together. You know, you just never know where you're going to find us. And, you know, just to let you know, our commitment, am I right, Jay, with Listen, Give, and to Voice, is we are committed to youth, media, music, and education, and so much more with family and all of that. But, you know, Jay, we've got a great guest on, so he's been waiting for like four minutes. So I think we should bring him on, don't you? Uh, without a doubt. Let's get busy. Let's get to him. Let's get this started. Hey, Eric Alper, how are you? I'm good. I'm really excited. This is this is very, very cool. I was going to stick around for the entire show to catch uh, what else is going on, but this is uh, you got a pretty good good show. Forget about me. <laughs> well, thank, we thank you so, so much. Um, you know, Jay and I have worked very hard to not only just about the show, Eric, but really to make a difference with um, young people around the world. That is our commitment. And so we've, you know, we do our best to have that happen, you know. Yeah, so, and you so and you and you do it very, very well because you know, as everybody knows, and it's, it's a cliche, but the cliches are true that that the kids and the teenagers are the future, and they are the most important people. And for any business in any industry, if you forget about your consumers and you forget about the people that helped you get up there, then uh, you're going nowhere. Oh, this is absolutely true. Jay, I, I think you have the feeling I do. We're going to have fun with Eric and may go off script. Don't you have that feeling? <laughs> oh, it sounds, it's, already, it's already rolling. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't get a script. I have no idea what script you're talking about, but that's okay. Well, Jay, no, Jay and I always put together a group of great questions, we think, but I think Jay and I have a feeling that we're going to be going off script and having some fun here Start with Start off you. with one question, and then we'll just go forward from there. That's exactly what we're going to do, Eric. So you ready to get started with us? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so Jay, one of, not Jay, I'm sorry, Eric, one of the things that we ask is that if you wouldn't mind answering each question because we have so much good stuff that we want to, you know, ask you that we just want to tailor it to that so that we do it within a time frame. Is that okay with you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Eric, we're going to get started. You know, um, you're a journalist, a radio show host on Sirius XM, Taste Magazine, Billboard, my God. My first question is, when did you start writing as a young person? Um, you know, my grandfather has a bar called Grossman's Tavern in Toronto, and it was one of the first places in Canada to have a liquor license. Um, and when you have a liquor license, the next thing that you do is you start to have music in there. So from 1955 onwards, he was one of the first people to actually have live bands on there. And every blues jazz rock musician um you know that that was playing about 300 400 capacity places stopped by Grossman's Tavern so I kind of grew up in that kind of an environment where music was always around the house especially with the music industry and I have no other talents I have no other skills I, I I'm awful at any instrument that you put in front of me I'm horrible in the studio I couldn't even tell you what any buttons mean at all um but the music industry was very, very exciting to me, and I had a subscription to Billboard magazine when I was 12 years old, and I loved reading about the stories. I loved reading about the industry and why things happen the way that they do. And um, so that kind of 
kickstarted everything. I knew I wanted to do something in music, but because I couldn't play, I knew I needed to find my road. I knew I needed to find my lane to figure out what I wanted to do. And once I went into university, I started writing for a couple of university publications and volunteered at the at the radio station there. The day after I graduated, I started my own PR firm and uh, took a lot of, of bands and artists that had no right to have a publicist because I was brand new. They were fairly young. I was cheaper, better, and I worked faster than anybody else in the city at the time. And so that got me a lot of clients. And that's where I made a lot of my mistakes because I knew that I would, I was going to make a lot of mistakes. And, um, but that's how you learn and that's how you grow. Cause without making those errors, you're not going to figure out how to do things properly. Um, and that led to working with a couple of other record labels. And then I got a job offer working for Koch and Koch was the Oh, oh before largest... you start, uh, Eric, we, yeah. we've got some questions later for you on that one. We don't want to give away oh, okay, all the goodies. Yeah, yeah. So then, yeah. So then I started working at Koch and then been hearing now we got bought out by Entertainment One a couple of years ago, and uh, have been now here since uh, for the last fifteen years. Okay. Well, so, okay. Uh, so, so, yeah, did you actually attend this university and study and study writing there? Um, you know what? I the the my perfect attendance class was called the History of Rock and Roll. Everything else uh-huh. suffered. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, English and mass communications. Like I yeah, exactly right. Like English, mass communications. It was perfect. I I attended all of those classes. Everything else was just. You, you know what? I, I knew university and college was really really important, and and I and I still believe that. But because I was one of the lucky ones that knew what they wanted to do really early on, I just kind of put a lot of my emphasis on that. And I knew that the music industry or any entertainment industry in particular, you got to go out there. You got to you got to you got to earn your keep. And they're not going to teach you in the classroom how to write so well in the style of what the readers are sometimes going to want, depending on what you're going to write. And they're not going to teach you how to schmooze. They're not going to teach you how to develop a contact list. They're not going to teach you how to make mistakes and learn from them. And so, yeah, those classes, I, I graduated with, with, uh, with English and mass communications, which allows me to read a book and talk about it. But other than that, it was, uh, the, you know, it was a great four years worth of breeding ground. Wow. wow. Well, you know, one of, the, one of the things I have a question about is, what was your first writing assignment that you were really excited about and why? Um, there was a band called the Charlatans UK that was right in the middle of a UK music scene that was happening called Manchester. And it was a, a scene that was developed out of Manchester. And uh, there were about seven or eight bands that all came from that area. And the first time that they hit North America, they all came to Toronto. And I did one of the first interviews with the band. And at the time, they were my favorite band. And I and I realized then that even though that, you know, in the media, they teach you sometimes to separate the fan and the writer um, and I think, though, I never learned really how to do that. Um, I never wrote anything that I hated. I never wrote anything that slammed anybody, especially within my own industry. There's people who do that very, very well. I'm not writing for the New York Times. I'm not writing for Business Insider. I'm not writing for those publications. And and I still, to this very day, turn down any interview requests um, in the media that I do um, that has to do with anything negative, because I, I just believe that, you know what, it's not my, it's not my place. Um, so I learned that it's okay to have enthusiasm about working in the media and it's okay to be to be a fan because 
you want to get that across to the reader, just why this band or this album or this artist or this scene or this new piece of news item is important. And sometimes it gets lost in all the numbers and the uh, kind of non-emotional side of, of journalism sometimes. And I think it's okay to be to be enthusiastic and excited about what you're writing about. So that was the first time that I actually got a taste of that it's okay not to be a serious news writer talking about this band. It's okay to be a music fan talking about music. Wow. What what was the first major magazine that you wrote for? Um, I, I, you know what? A lot of the times it was just basically giving my opinion to a lot of the magazines, but I still have the very first billboard magazine from about 15 years ago where I was quoted in it. And, um, um, I, and I love that. And that, that came very, very quickly. And I think, you know, with the advent of social media, with Facebook and Twitter, and even going back to MySpace, um, that's, those social media networks have allowed me to purge out my brain of all the useless facts and all the fun sites and all of the great stories that I find online anyway before I got on social media. And once social media kind of came involved, especially when it came down to Twitter, that's when things really kind of exploded um, in terms of allowing me to just have a larger audience to the things that I love. And uh, so, yeah, so it was probably Billboard back in like 15 years ago. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow, okay. All I can say is wow. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in knowing, Eric, is why has your writing and way of creativity garnered you so many magazines and media outlets who want to who want you to, you know, work with them in such a competitive industry? Um I think probably for two reasons. The first one is because I happen to be one of the rare people in North America that actually work in the industry full-time, and I'm allowed to comment on things other than my own artists that we have on the record label. Entertainment One and Koch has been really, really great at allowing me to go in the media and talk about other bands and talk about other record labels and talk about other things that don't necessarily have to do with Entertainment One's artists, and sometimes companies don't don't allow that. Um, but Entertainment One loved that, and and cause it, you know what? It's great branding for them. It allows me to get the name out of of E1 Music and uh, and me. And then when I meet an independent band that I love or a label that um, you know I want to work with, it, they they're a little bit more familiar with with me and what I do. Um, and with Entertainment One, because I get to do things like this. Um, I, and I think the second reason is um, because I. Because I'm not a musical snob. <laughs> I, I think that's really what it comes down to, is that, is that I, I think that because working here has allowed all of us here to have a really big open mind when it comes to any kind of musical style or any kind of musical success, um, that, you know, the ability to just talk about music in general, it's it's all good, whether it's metal or rap or jazz or 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 hip hop or rock or soul it's it's all music that that comes down to how does it make you feel what does it make you do and what does it make the fans want to do and um so i, I think that that's kind of why why i i get asked to do these things and i never turn anything down really i mean i'm always happy to talk and i come cheap so i don't charge for anything everything i do <laughs> the blog you know 
everything <laughs> I do, every quote, every story. I mean, I do the blog for free. I don't do, I don't take ads on the site at all, because um, I never want to come across like there could be a possible conflict of interest in in what I do. Um, I, you know, every band, even on Entertainment One, um, has to, you know, be of the ability of of greatness for me to write about them or for me to talk about them. So nobody kind of gets any special favorites just because they happen to be at entertainment one. Wow. Wow. So what, what are some, I'm going to have a question. What are some of the challenges and or obstacles you found in moving your career forward? Um, well, I, I think, you know, the the big one is that I'm hearing impaired. So I wear hearing aids in both ears. I lost my hearing um, at about an 80% rate um, when I was 12. I went to go see The Who in 1982 um, as, a, as a kid, and I walked out of there with, like, this strange sensation that, um, you know, something's wrong. You know, I, I, I'm not hearing everything at the level that I used to. And literally, I blew out my eardrums at that show, not even realizing it. Um, so I think be, mm. being a, being hearing impaired, working in the music industry, would probably be like being a blind umpire at a baseball game. It just it just doesn't happen because so many people rely on their ears to sign artists and to, um, you know, to to work in, a, in, in an industry where sound is the most important thing on there. So I think that's probably like the biggest challenge, but it's something that it never stopped me from doing anything it, it never impeded me to um to be in the studio and to give my opinion on music you know wearing the hearing aids help immensely um and then you know there's times when i can take them out and just be in total silence and get some work done without any distractions which is awesome sometimes um but other than that i i think that's probably the biggest obstacle and it wasn't even a it, it was everything it was physical it was psychological it was mental um but i i i it could have been my way out. It could have been my, my, my excuse not to do what I love to do. And, and I just had no, no desire to use that as an excuse at all. Wow. wow. That's amazing. That, that really is. He's like a Beethoven, you know, kind of like. You know, <laughs> he went, right, he went kind of deaf. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm actually still working on my first symphony. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, like I mean, I can I can only it. imagine. I mean, there there's times when it's when you know I'm listening to things and and somebody says you know there's too much bass and I'm like I have no idea I can't even hear half the bass that's going on in this and which is why I'm glad that I don't work in the studio environment. You know, people don't want me in the studio anyway. They they want they want me pitching and working and stuff, which is great. But it, what's <laughs> amazing is what Jay is saying is that you have that but yet you are working with bands and in music i mean i think that's amazing that's a it's almost like stevie wonder you lose one thing but another thing is even enhanced yeah. but you're hearing you're hearing it yeah. enhanced in a way you know in ways yeah that you, i mean it, it, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it comes. It really just comes down to enthusiasm. And look, everybody's got every excuse in the book not to do anything with their lives. Every, you know, I, I don't make enough money. Um, I'm I'm lonely. I'm single. Nobody likes me. I don't have enough friends. Um, I get tired very easy. I have a heart problem. I broke my leg. Like, and there there are a thousand and one reasons why somebody doesn't 
get up and go do what they want to do with their lives and follow their dreams and follow their passion. And there's only one reason why that they should is because this is the only life that we have and you've got to do it. You just have to wake up and do it. And if you find the thing that you love, there is nothing to stop you from achieving anything. And I, and I believe that every day with the artists that we work with, or even, even you two, like, you know, who wants to listen to another, another, you know, another blog or radio show in a, in a sea of 10,000. Well, you guys get to do it because a, you're great. B you're good at it. And see, you've got the enthusiasm and the know-how and the knowledge to put the show together and spread the word out and contact guests. And that's things that people dream of doing, but never can figure out how to get from point A to point B. And um, really it's just a road. That's all, you know, your struggle that you I was going Sorry. to just say that Eric J, Jay and I have always been people who, you know, knew, you know, we grew up that way. So, you know, which brings me into the next question to you, Eric, actually. And we thank you for the compliment, by the way. I don't want to step over that. What has it been like day to day to keep up all the media coverage and how do you keep your deadlines up in the face of your interview? Uh, yeah. You know what? It, it, there, there's 24 hours in the day and um, I, I've got a, a good eye on my BlackBerry and my phone uh, and my iPhone on all the time. But it's something that, um, you know, when I've got shows going on in the West Coast or the East Coast in America or in Canada, um, you know, and they get on stage at 9 o'clock and they're maybe having problems with their guest list at 8.30, well, that's like 11.30, 12.30 my time in the morning. So I, I've from day one, I knew that this was the life that I wanted to, to create for myself. I made myself available for for any problems or anything like that because I don't look for problems and excuses. I just want to hear solutions. And um, so realistically, you know, the deadlines are just deadlines. They're, they're, I, I happen to work well around them because it kind of kicks your butt a little bit because I think sometimes without deadlines it makes it a little bit easier to get lazy and wait for the last minute anyway, which a lot of people just end up doing anyway, myself included. Wow, Eric. Um, I, I want to know how did you begin writing for each magazine and what steps, you know, so our young audience knows, uh, you know, you know, to, you know, to keep yourself competitive with with these outlets to reach out to you um, for writing with them. I mean, what what um, what steps did you do to uh, to get these different magazines? Yeah, I, I think it was just a matter of writing and writing and writing. It was just it's just like anything else. If you're an artist, you're just practicing, practicing, practicing and trying to get those ten thousand hours worth of practice in so that when you're ready, you're ready. Um, you know, I when I was when I began writing and doing PR, um, you know, I, I was writing for publications that were tiny, tiny, tiny under the radar that nobody knew about, you know, except for maybe the editors and a couple of other writers. And then when I was doing PR, it was working bands that nobody knew about um but you know everybody left me alone everybody just let me be and uh and work that way and you got your practice that way you got to develop your skills and no matter what you do um you know with the with the show on Sirius XM that I didn't ask for that I wasn't even looking for something like that just the ability um to transfer whatever skill that I have to talk about 
music on the TV. Somebody just thought, oh, let's stick a microphone in him for an hour and let him talk rather than the other way around. Because normally I'm used to being a guest like here rather than being a host. And I, and I, and I love that because I'm curious about the nature of music anyway and how it gets made and the songwriting and all and, and everything that accompanies that. And so, um, but I got my practice in places that were so under the radar, nobody knew about. So when that time came, and those opportunities came, however ready I was, I just said yes to it. I mean, I turned out a lot of stuff, but it was just a matter of um, you, you've you've got to just um, develop those skills. And uh, so that you don't really have any fear in what you're doing anymore. I mean, look, I get really nervous and choked up and very, very sweaty, you know, at the beginning of every show that I do on Sirius XM. But once the talking happens, it's just a conversation just like we are. How do you keep yourself competitive for these outlets? And, you know, did you reach out to them or do they come to you? How, yeah, how a, lot of, a lot of the times they yeah in the beginning of the writing I actually went to to a lot of people there there might have been a band that was in town or or a movie that was coming in into the theaters and I just pitched the writer on on stuff uh, on me doing a review or me doing an interview but like eight times out of ten though I would get turned down because that was just the way that the freelancers operate is that for a lot of these newspapers and magazines they have their own staff that they pay on a regular basis to create content and stories every single week and then they have freelancers that you know if you're an expert in in, in hip hop, you know, and you pitch a story, or you may have access to that artist that nobody else does, they're going to call on you to to you know to to get that interview, and that's where you're developing your contacts. And um, you know, if you can get things done when you say that you're going to get done, and talk to the people who you say that you're going to talk to, um, then you know you're you're halfway there. So a lot of the times it was it was uh, um, pitching people. Um, for about three or four years. And then once I started working at, at Koch and E1, I, I just did my job. Like I, I just, there was no real social media outlets. And and I did that on the side. It was just something that was fun that I wanted wow. to still keep one foot in there. But then in the last couple of, about three or four years, that's when it kind of revved up a little bit. Um, and I'm just so gracious and so blessed to be able to, you know, to, to kind of expand, you know, people's music horizons a little bit more. Wow. Well, you know, what I'd like to know is what are some of the, you know, you know, Eric, like what advice would you give people who want to know your path today? And my other question inside of that is how did you get started on Sirius XM? Because now Jay and I have taken you through the writing and the youth who are listening have learned what your path and how you got started and the realism behind that. But then what advice would you give people on that path, and then how did you get to the next path of being a radio show host on Sirius XM? I mean, that's, like, really amazing. I'm it, yeah, it, it was um, Sirius XM was uh, um, they're about three blocks away from from where our office is, and um, we I used to bring in our artists into one of the shows called the Ward and Al Show, which is on um, uh, Channel One Sixty Seven on Canada Talks, and I used to just as a publicist bring in the artists into that show for interviews and performances, and then I I just kept doing that, and then um, I mean same thing with Canada AM, which is uh, you know the the, the only national television show morning show in, in Canada it's kind of like our version of the Today Show or Good Morning America and I just kept bringing in artists that were performing on both those programs and um, at you know 
every every you know six months or so you know they would just ask me hey do you want to come in and talk about the latest box sets or do you want to come in and talk about the grammys or do you want to come in and talk about you know what's going on with miley cyrus and i would go on and i would talk about that and and it offered me a little bit of, of credibility because of, of of the fact that i work in the industry but also everybody knew that i was on the up and up that I wasn't just putting things in there because they just happened to be for my record label. So I wasn't just sliding in things here and there because of, uh, you know, because of that, because your credibility was, was everything. Um, I did the Ward and Al show for 87 consecutive weeks every Tuesday for an hour to talk about new releases. So I would talk about all the latest releases that were happening for an hour. And I did that for, for about 86, 87 times. And then the, uh, the, the director of talk radio just came up to me and said, you know what, just take over your own show. Just have it. Here's five slots every weekend. We're going to air it once and then repeat it four times and just go, you get full control of the show. You can do whatever you want to do. You can, um, have anybody you want on the show, just go and have a good time. And that's what I've been doing ever since then. So, um, you know, going back to talking about practicing and, and getting your, your hours in there, that was my practicing, you know, and watching people when I took artists into the media outlets, whether it was print, television, or radio, watching how the hosts react, watch how the TV hosts talk on air. Um, and I wasn't polished. I, I'm still not polished. How I talk to you right now is exactly how I talk to to the artists that are on the show. I, I didn't take radio and broadcasting. I didn't take television in university. So I'm by far the least polished person out there. But um, but I'm I'm always curious, and I'm I always love just talking to 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 people in general. You know, I can probably talk for an hour or two just to anybody off of the street, only because I'm just fascinated with who what with what their story is. So I, I think a large part of it just came into just watching and learning and not really asking for the world. Like I didn't walk in there after my first segment on Sirius XM saying, that's it, I'm ready to go, I want a show. It actually, they actually approached me on both counts, whether it was Canada AM or, or, uh, or Sirius XM. And that way the ball was in my court to make that decision rather than the other way around. Oh, wow. That's, that's, uh, that's good when you get the ball in your court. Um, Eric, what the music industry is going today, and what does the future hold? Um, I, I think it's probably safe to say that the light is past everybody at the end of the tunnel. Um, for a few years there, I don't think anybody had any clue or any idea where the music industry was actually heading because CD sales were, were going down streaming music on Spotify and RDO and, and Deezer and other so, and other media sites were starting to kind of come up and the music industry was very very cautious about it because you know if you if you look back on what happened when the MP3 was invented um and you know sites like the Pirate Bay and other now illegal downloading sites happened the music industry was kind of caught off guard a little bit and they and they were a couple of years behind the goalposts in trying to help the consumer make the best decisions so that everybody could get paid properly the artists the record label right. the producers everybody um but because they kind of didn't know what to make of it and they kind of brushed it off as, well, you know what, it's not going to be that huge. Um, that's where you got Napster. 
faster. And that's where you got the success of, of those kind of sites. And that's where we still are. We're trying to, you know, trying to stop, you know, illegal downloading so that nobody gets paid. Um, but in the last like three or four years, you know, streaming has gone up anywhere between 4% and 25% around the world, depending on what country you look at. Um, you know, CD sales are still dropping a little bit, but in most cases, the amount of money that streaming makes for the record labels and the artists have kind of um, allowed that gap to close a lot. So I think it's only going to be a matter of time until streaming becomes more accessible. You know, the whole thing with Taylor Swift taking her music off of Spotify, that probably gave Spotify more PR than any other ad campaign that they could have ever developed because it got people thinking about, well, what is Spotify? What are the issues? And how can I get on it? I mean, for a really low price, you can have access to the entire world's music catalog from 1700 up until today. And you don't really own it. And I think that that's where people are going now is that I'm not so sure that people want to own music anymore. They want to listen to it and they want to stream it and they want to listen to what they want to listen to when they want to listen to it, however many times they want to listen to it. And going back to the beginning of the conversation, if you stop listening to what your customers want, that's when you'll be in trouble. And I think for a, a, a period of time, the music industry did that, but quickly got on board with listening and talking to the customers to find to see how they like to consume music. You know, I, I always used to say that it's not my job to tell people how to consume music. I just want them to consume music. And we'll just try to get it in that capacity, however it matters to them. That's, that's important, too. That's um, very important. Yeah, you know, one of the things um, I would like to know is what do you, you know, what do you think is missing in the music industry today. You know, Jay and I talk about this a lot, and one of the things I find is we're going back to real music again because for a minute we have stopped having real music. And I'm talking about all across all genres. So what do you think is missing in music today just in general? And, you know, um, we'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, I, I, I don't think anything is, is, is kind of missing per se. I, I think, you know, it all depends. I mean, if you ask a 12-year-old girl right now, you know, what they think about music, they, they there's probably way too much music for them to wrap their head around. You know, they might be listening to Lord, The Beatles, Taylor Swift, Ariana Grande, Miley Cyrus, uh, Jesse J., Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, and Led Zeppelin, all in all on their iPods. And then in about a year, they'll probably get into Marvin Gaye and Motown and Stax, and then they'll realize that there's a little bit more, you know, as long as there's teenagers, there's always going to be that pissed off, angry music that people need, you know, and then they, they kind of develop, you know, their gloomy teenage years sometimes, and they'll get into a little bit of goth or rock and roll and they'll go to Led Zeppelin and the Who and the Doors and the Stones and all that stuff. So I, I think it really, I, I'm not sure that anything is, is missing. I think what it is, one thing that it is missing, and it's going to come down shortly because it always does in cycles, is that one band to rally everybody around the music industry. You know, you had it in the 50s with Elvis. You had it in the 60s with the Beatles. And the 70s could be either between punk music or disco or Led Zeppelin. And the 80s were, you know, the, 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 new, the uh, new wave bands like Duran Duran, um, Flock of Seagulls, and, and the clash and those kind of bands and the 90s were all about nirvana 
nobody really kind of stood out in the 2000s, but then when Taylor Swift came along in the last couple of years, like really started to sell, I think that she's that lightning rod. She's the person that... Um, I'm I'm actually kind of still surprised that people still buy Taylor Swift only because it's kind of like oh you're just getting into Taylor Swift now that's amazing because you would think that everybody on the on the entire planet would would know about her already but there's always new people coming up that are just starting to get into music they're still they're getting their allowance for the first time they're 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 watching YouTube for the first time because maybe they were 11 when the album came out but now they're 13 and they get it so I think that you know if Taylor Swift isn't it and she might very well be that one artist to kind of give everybody a little bit of a kick in the butt and change the industry. And again, I mean, the way that Taylor Swift handled her her career with Spotify, the way that she's registering and trademarking certain phrases from her 1989 album, the way that she's developed her career going from country to pop, she might actually be the one that we're talking about 50 years from now in the same manner of breath as the Beatles and Marvin Gaye and, you know, people that revolutionized the music industry. That's that's, that's, that's incredible. Uh yeah, I have this one question real fast. I just yeah. want to know what do you what do you do, Aaron, when the creative mind Jay, goes blank? I'm sorry, Jay. I'm sorry, we've actually ran out of time because we the next guest is coming on. I'm so sorry, Eric. Um, yeah, no problem. You, no, happy to do that. What what I would love to find out is, Eric, would you come back on with us? And, um, oh, absolutely. Uh, I'll come back with you guys anytime, anytime. And if anybody uh, wants to reach me and ask a question about the music industry, they can do that on Twitter, at that Eric Alper, or they can just send a, an email through the website, at that, uh, which is uh, thatericalper.com. Okay, no problem. Thank you so much. And, you know, um, Eric, just stay uh, on with us for just a moment. Uh, we'd yeah. love you to come on and listen to our next guest, um, Mr. Jay Ivey. Um, I have so much, I mean, I have nothing but love for this man. Um, we are releasing, Jay and I are releasing a song that's going uh, worldwide with the UN called Never Alone. Uh, Jay Ivey chose to be in the um, in the video for us upon us asking and requesting his you know, him to be a part of it, and he will be a part of it. But what I'm so proud about this man, Jay Ivory is from Chicago. He comes from a single-parent home. He's wrote a book called Dear Father. I almost want to cry as soon as I get into this. Um, I met him at the Clinton Global Initiatives about two years ago with some other people. He is one of the most world-renowned poets. He's worked with everyone from Martha Stewart to Kanye West, uh, Jay-Z, uh, John Legend, he gave John Legend his last name, Legend. So, you know, without further ado, I know he's going to say, Gail, you don't have to give me all this, but he's one of the most humble people I've ever met. Wife is amazing. Uh, shout out to Atari for having him on. You know, so without further ado, we're going to bring on Mr. <laughs> Jay Ivy. How are you, Jay? Do we have you there, Jay? Hello, Mr. J. Ivy. Okay, we're going to try him on the other line. Can you hear me? Do, yes, Mr. J., do we have you? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yeah. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm fantastic. How you doing, Gail? You know I'm fine. I am so <laughs> I exciting that. to have you on the show. I told Jay all about you. We are so, so excited to have you here. You know, it's just, oh, you, you know I'm excited, right? <laughs> you know, um, you know, 
Jay is just an amazing person. I want you to so – this is going to be hard, so we're going to call you Jay Ivy because my partner and, and the fellow co-host here is Jay Logan. So I don't want to get confused with the Js over here, okay? It's all the Js with the G, okay? So, Jay, I'm going to call you Jay, and I'm going to call you Jay Ivy. So you guys don't start confusing me, okay? Um, all right, that works just, for me. Okay. okay. Jay, it's so good to have you on. And, um, you know, we're going to ask you a, a series of questions, okay? And we okay. just ask, if if you don't mind, just, you know, because we got so much to get in this little time we have with you. So if you would just tailor your answers to those questions, okay? Um, okay. We want everybody to know that, you know, I've already said it. You have a book out called Dear Father, Breaking the Cycle. Um, and, you know, it, it really is just, I'm going to get right into it. So you've been writing since you were a student in school. Now, we, right. Jay and I did a little research on you, and we heard that it happened with an English teacher who told you you just had the talent, okay? So we want you to tell us a little bit about that particular time and what it was like for you. Yeah, well, you know, I was uh, my junior year in high school. My English teacher named Miss Argue. She had us write a poem for homework assignment. I didn't want to write the poem. I didn't, you know, I wasn't <laughs> trying to do it. I was good at writing notes to girls, but that was about it, you know. So anyway, I did my homework, and the next day she surprised the class and said she wanted everyone to read their piece in front of the class. So I didn't want to read it. So I definitely didn't, you know, I didn't want to write it. So I definitely didn't want to read it. But uh, I followed suit. I read the piece. After class, she pulled me to the side. She said, you have a very nice speaking voice. I want to put you on a show. And I was a very shy kid. I was you know, to myself until I warmed up, you know, the folks. But uh, so I didn't, do the, I didn't do the show. So she had another show come up, and she approached me again. She said, you know what, last time I asked you to do the show, you faked me out. This time I'm not asking you. You have to do it. So when she challenged me, I'm like, okay, well, I, you know, I'll step up to the challenge and so I, she gives me this piece to learn, and I, I rehearsed it for for weeks and weeks and weeks up until the show. And as nervous as I was on that stage, my hand was shaking, knee was shaking. I, I delivered the piece, and my first time on stage, I got a standing ovation, and I was just I just fell in love with that with that moment, that energy, and that propelled me to, you know, ask her when I'm now I'm asking her when's the next show, you know. So I'm now I'm doing every show, and that led me to going to college and, and continuing on, and then I started. Uh, really diving into writing poetry, so I added my poetry to my love for performing, and and has been doing it ever since. Wow, wow! I I like to know um, how was it writing when you know other students around you were doing things in peer pressure? Did you want to go do uh, some of the things that the other kids were doing? You know, with the girls, baseball, basketball, all that other stuff. So, how did you deal with that? Yeah, well, for me, like that part of the reason why I didn't want to dive into the writing because I was an athlete. I was playing football. I was running track. I played basketball one year. I got cut the other years, but you know, that, that's, that's another thing. <laughs> but um, you know, and then I had you know I had my crew, of my my guys that I hung out with, and there were girls I was chasing after, and you know, so I was a, I, I guess a you know typical teenager, you know, just just trying to make my way through day to day and, and, and then I'm discovering myself along the way of who I was. But once um and at the at the time it wasn't really cool. Like poetry wasn't a cool thing, you well, know. Uh but it was something that, that my heart was just pushing me to do. You know, so I did it, you know. 
Well, you know, one like, of the things yeah, I yeah. want to know is how was it growing up in Chicago? And I understand your mother was a single uh, parent raising you, telling us about, you know, I want to know, don't take us to the adult time, but growing up, you know, around that time writing poetry, you're growing up, you know, in Chicago, you know how that is. You know, when I say how right. that is, I don't mean Chicago like it's a bad area. But, I mean, you're growing up in Chicago, you're a youth. You know, it's not. It's cool to chase girls, but not to write poetry. And then, you know, you, you know, you're seeing your mom as a single parent raising you. Tell us a little bit about that time in your life. Well, for me, I, I had the – I had – I guess two experiences. I grew up on the south side on, on 87 in Winchester. And around that time, you know, this is when the, uh, the, the this crack bomb kind of landed and, and hit, you know, a lot of the urban cities and Chicago being one of them. So Chicago was very, you know, it was a blue-collar town. People filled, you know, filled up with a lot of love, a lot of hardworking. Um, the culture is amazing from music to to the arts to, you know, the gangs are, are very strong in our cities and at the same time it's a very segregated city you know so you know a black neighborhood is a black neighborhood a white neighborhood is a white neighborhood that's all you're going to see in those neighborhoods from you know to the store owners to the teachers to the to the folks delivering the mail you know so I had this experience of, of living in this very I guess kind of uh this black box you know so to speak and the, the neighborhood at the same time the neighborhood was changing because of the violence that was starting to to increase because of because of the, the drug epidemic. So after after the, the neighborhood was was changed, and then my father he like he was there when I was younger. But then my folks, you know, drugs and alcohol became a factor, and then my folks, you know, the fights broke out, and they ended up separating and then divorcing. Um, after after a while, my mother she was she just she didn't want to lose me and my brothers to the streets. I had two brothers, the older and the younger brother. So she worked two three jobs, two three shifts, and you know, she we see her early. You know, early in the morning she was leaving the house. She's coming home late at night, and she just saved her money. You know, she was saving up, saving up, saving up because she didn't want me to go to high school in the city. So we we packed up and moved. My eighth grade year, we packed up and moved to the south suburbs. So here I go from this very very uh, black upbringing to now I'm I'm being shocked by culture because now I'm living amongst. Everyone, you know, that now I'm in classrooms with, with white kids that, and I don't really remember having conversations with white kids before this moment, you know, and um, it was just it was just this different viewpoint. But you know, in retrospect, it was kind of more how the world was made up, you know. So I had this, you know, like I said, I had these two different experiences where I would go from this all black moment to now I'm 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 experiencing other cultures and now we're we're being taught by the same teachers and we're learning together and we're having these conversations and we're hanging out, we're playing basketball together and you know, we we hanging out at each other's houses. You know, so it was for me it was um I think early on I got a, a good view of how the world was and, and how cultures can come together and 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 be uh you know, just live live, you know, amongst each other, you know. And uh, then at the same time, my neighborhood of South Suburbs, that was changing, too, because my high school, when I started, it was 80% white, 20% black my freshman year. My senior year, it was 80% black, 20% white. You know, so at the same time, so this, this was another change I was seeing. I was, I was, I was seeing folks migrate and leave, and, and it, was, it was just a, 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 just a, a another, yet another outlook on how, how the world is, you know. 
Jay Ivey, when did you start actually performing poetry? Uh, well, in my junior year of high school, when I was performing scripts and monologues, my freshman year of college is when I wrote a poem for this girl. She loved it. All the girls loved it. So I took the poem to my English professor. My English professor loved it. So she said, look, she said, I have this show coming up. And she was like, I want you to write a poem and perform. And I was like, oh, wow, I can perform what I write. You know, so this was my freshman year of college. It was my first time performing my own work. And it was uh, it was, it was an eye-opener, to say the least. Wow. Um, I'd like to know what was the first opportunity that you were passionate about that put you out there with your poetry and writing but was all but was also wanting to know what was special. That's okay, so I'm not clear here. What was the first opportunity that you were really passionate about, you know, whether it's putting out you're out there on, you know, with all the work you're doing now, but it was something that was special about this opportunity, it was something special to you. What was that? What was your first opportunity, even if it was you were heavily into your career or when you were younger? It was really special to you, and why? Yeah, there, there were a couple of moments. One was that very, very first moment being on stage and just being awakened to this gift that I didn't know existed. Then later on, when I started getting into writing poetry, I, I, when I was in college, I would send my poems home to my mother. And one day my mom's called me and said, we should do a book. I said, Ma, I haven't been writing a year yet. She was like, I, I don't care about that. you got enough poetry for a book. Let's do a book. So we put together this book called Poetically Black, and it was a compilation of, of my poetry. And that was to see something go from my notebook, from, from my thoughts to my notebook to uh, uh, this physical book. You know, that, that really was something that propelled my thoughts forward. And, and just being able to see it, it allowed me to see the possibilities. So then, you know, as time went on, I, I was doing stuff for the radio station back in Chicago called WGCI. They did, the, like, this African-American art calendar where they had artists from the city, and they had us write poems for the artists. So to see that, that was amazing. Then fast forward a little bit, there was uh, a poetry spot called Rituals, which was this amazing poetry night at this jazz club, and all poets, all kind of poets from all over the city and, and the nation would come through, and we had a band, and, and I ended up being the host of this event. So that that you know it was it was yet another step you know that that would propel me to 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 dream even bigger and, and to set more goals and bigger goals and then that eventually led me to to being the first African American to be selected out of Chicago to be on Russell Simmons Deaf Poetry so here I am now I'm I'm on this show where I'm performing my poetry, something that I just wrote in my notebook for me, you know, venting and just getting something out. Now here I am on this show and it's being seen seen by millions of people. And I'm running to folks in, in the streets and, and, they you know, they're telling me, oh, man, that poem I need to write. Even I remember running to Dave Chappelle one day, and he, he actually did the, the deaf poetry with us. And and I told him, I was like, hey, man, what's up, man? I'm Jay Ivey. I did deaf poetry with you. He was like, yeah, I remember you. You was my favorite poet. I'm like, oh, man, come on, man. You know, I'm thinking he don't remember me. And he was like, yeah, you did that poem. I need to write. I need to write. You know, so I'm having these moments that that showed me that my work was actually getting out there and it was reaching the masses. And, and there was always – I always wanted to just reach out and inspire. I remember um, one moment I, back in Chicago I had um, – I was performing at this rehabilitation center for recovering alcoholics and drug addicts, and and I performed this poem called "I Got My Wings," 
And there was this lady that approached me after the performance, and she said she was in the program, and she said, you know, she's like, she's like, I, I lost, I believe it was my, she lost her father, her brother, and her and her son, like back to back to back, like January lost one, February lost the other, March lost the other, and she approached me. And she said, you know, after hearing that poem, that's the first time. This is the first time I'm able to rest at peace or find peace, you know, since their passing. And she just thanked me and thanked me and thanked me. And I'm, I was just this young guy that, you know, I was just doing something that was fun to me. But it was so, it was so moving and so inspiring to see that I was able to touch someone in depth, you know. So, so that it was moments like that that would propel me, with, you know, allow me to get to the moments where I'm, now I'm on a record with Kanye and Jay Z and on Kanye's first album, and I got a Grammy for that. And, and each moment was just another moment where, where I was able to just expand my reach because that's all I wanted to do. My pops, he was a, a DJ, an on-air personality like yourself. My mother, she was a uh, uh, she's a retired nurse. I always felt it was part of my mission, my life mission, was to use my voice to help heal people. You know, so anytime I would get the opportunity to, to reach out to further, you know, further my reach. It was it's just always been a blessing and always just pushed me forward. Wow. That is um so what 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 was your favorite piece of poetry you wrote and how did it I mean I know you wrote a lot of poetry and you know, it was probably hard to have a favorite. But maybe name one of your favorites. Uh and how and how did it inspire you? Well my my favorite is is uh I do have you know a, a lot of them are are favorites, but I would say the 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 biggest one for me would have to be my poem Dear Father, and Dear Father was it, it freed me from so much pain that I had in regards to my pops not being there because you know after like I said you know my my folks got divorced I didn't see her for my father for ten years. And then after a very valuable lesson, and my my older cousin, she uh, she's like one of the angels of my family. She she I was talking to her one day about how I was feeling, and she told me she said, "Look, she in regards to my father." And she said, "Look, she said you have to learn how to forgive, or else you're going to carry that pain with you the rest of your life." So now I have that you know circling through my mind, and you know it really resonated when she when she spoke to me about it. So I decided to forgive my father, and we actually reconnected after ten years of not seeing him. He called me out the blue one day, but then a year and a half later, after we reconnected, he passed away. So now I'm going through this roller coaster of emotions, and I'm I'm angry all over again. I'm hurt. I'm sad he's not here. And, you know, I had questions that now I'm a young man. I have these questions you know that I want to ask my father. He's not there to ask. And one day I had a conversation. My mother, she called me up and she said, look, she said, she said, look, your, I, I told her how I was feeling. And she said, your father was a good man. Let him rest in peace. And hearing that, hearing your mother, you know, tell you something so strong and, and knowing about everything that she had gone through with, with him and, and never hearing her speak ill of him, it really made me just really think about those words. And, and I did know my father was a good man. You know, he, he grew up as with with his pain and unfortunately he ended up passing on that pain to to us you know if you hurt people hurt people you know so here I am and um I always say you know if you don't deal with your emotions one day your emotions will deal with you and I'm I'm sitting here and I'm hurt but hearing my mother's words I knew it was time for me to tackle this issue so I decided to write my father this 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 letter or this this poem 
and I wrote this poem, and wow. immediately after writing it, there were tears on the page when I wrote it, but it was the happiest poem I've ever written because it made me a much better person, a much better man. It freed me from this pain. It allowed me to heal. It allowed me to truly, truly forgive. You know, it showed me the power of forgiveness. You know, so so that, hands down, it, it, it's my favorite because it changed my life. I feel like it saved my life because I don't know where things would have turned or what, you know, how how my road could have detoured in the wrong direction had not I, I written that, that poem. Well, Jay, we're going to stop you because wow. we've got a question for you at the end. And, you know, Jay and I, we, we're try, Jay and I are trying to be cool, okay, because we got <laughs> and, and and we want to know, can you spend some more time with us because we have a few questions for you. Oh, yeah, we'd love to. Okay. So one of the things I want to ask you is, you know, on a lighter moment, because we don't get into that stuff later, audience. We want you to know, so just just be prepared for it, because Jay and I are ready to go there. But um, we want to know, John Legend. People don't know, Jay Ivey has worked with John Legend. But i got to mm-hmm. ask you, John Legend, you know where I'm going, right? How, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we've heard that you gave him from John Stevens to the last name Legend. Now, how in the world did that happen? <laughs> So I was I went out to uh, uh, so the the pre story is I, I got the call about doing the record with Kanye and Jay Z in which I was just I just couldn't believe when I got when I got that phone call my buddy Cootie called me he was in the studio with Kanye he's like Jay you need to get to L A right now he's like Kanye has his song with 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 him and Jay Z on it he want to put a poet on it and I told him you need to put Jay Ivy on it. At the time, I was broke in Brooklyn, and I, I'm like, "Come on, man, it's not funny." You know what I mean? I'm like, "This, this is not funny." So anyway, he was like, "He was like, look, he's like, I'm for real. You need to get to LA tomorrow if you can." So when I realized he was for real, I was like, "Oh man, I need to get on it." So he played the song for me over the phone. Couldn't hear the words, so he told me what Jay Z was saying, telling me Kanye was saying. And he was like, "Yo, get out of here." So I hang up the phone. My first thought was, "You need to write something right now." So I wrote the, the title down, "Never Let Me Down." I wrote the date down, and I wrote the first line wrote that first line, mine went completely blank. So then I started banging on the page. I was like, God, I need a piece right now. Please give me one right now. So I put my hand back to the page, and my hand just started moving, 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 right, right, right. And I wrote a full page, turned the page over, read over it. I'm like, man, it's kind of hot, you know. So I read over like four or five times. I called Cooley back in 10 minutes, like, dog, listen to this. So I spit the poem for him on the phone. He going crazy. He like, hold on. So he goes in the other room. Music's loud. People are loud. The music goes down. The people get quiet. He's like, Jay spit the poem again. So I spit it over the speakerphone. And when I finished, the room exploded. Everybody going crazy. So I'm in Brooklyn. Bro, like, what's up? You know, everybody, uh, I'm in Brooklyn by myself. Like, what's up? What's good? Somebody tell me something, you know. And then I hear Kanye. Like, Kanye, like, do it again, Jay. Do it again. Do it again. So I did it for like a half hour. The pieces a minute long. So then Cootie, he finally get back on the phone. He's like, Jay, guess what? I'm like, what? He's like, Kanye flying you out here tomorrow. I was like, man, I found my way. So I go out to record that record. I'm, I'm blown away by the entire moment because I'm hearing Jay-Z, who's retiring at the time, and I'm hearing Kanye in this space for me. So I recorded my part, and the song was it was just this beautiful, beautiful song. So, of course, we listened to it a million times, right? So after we listened to it over and over again, Kanye was like, man, Jay, have you heard of this singer named John Stevens? I was like, yeah, I've been hearing about him in New York. So we, we were out in Hollywood. And he was like, man, let me play you this song. So he plays this song, and the song was amazing, just this soulful, just uplifting, inspiring song, you know. 
So an hour later, John Stevens comes in the studio. I was like, yo, what's up, man? I'm Jay Ivy, poet from Chicago. Man, I heard your music. I was like, man, it's amazing. I was like, it sounded I was like, it sound like that music from the old school. I was like, it sounded like that music my folks would listen to. I was like, dog. I was like, you sound like one of the legends. I was like, you a legend, you a legend. I was like, matter of fact, that's what I'm going to call you from now on. I'm going to call you the legend. So a couple of days later, we're still in the studio, and we're in the lounge of the studio. And it was like 10 or 12 of us, me, Kanye, Cootie was there, Ty was there. So in walked John Stevens. And, you know, somebody walk in the room, everybody shouts you out. So he walk in, everybody like, oh, John Stevens in the building, John Stevens in the house, oh, John Stevens. I was like, John Legend. And everybody looked at me, and they looked back at him, and they was like, oh, man, that's your new name. And Kanye, he was the main one. He's like, that's your new name? No, you John Legend from now <laughs> So that's how he got the name, John Legend. Wow, I, I want you to give me a name since you, you know, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> I want a name too now. <laughs> yeah, Gail needs a name. We all need names. You the name man. Um, Today I got you. I got you. <laughs> well, you know, you, you mentioned Kanye West, and um, I'm, I just want to know what was it like working with him? Man, it it was absolutely amazing. You know, it was. Like, one, like, Kanye, he's he just a super cool dude. Like, I was, when I first, I moved to New York after doing that poetry. So when I got to New York, Kanye, he was he had moved here a couple of years beforehand. So he was one of the people I was kicking it with. Um, like, you know, every other day, every day, this was around time he was he was shopping uh, to, to get a record deal. And, and shortly after I got here is when he got his record deal with, with Rockefeller. So I was able to get to know him you know, leading up to up to working with him. And he was just, I mean, just a super cool dude. He's genuine. He's super funny. He's super smart. And when it comes to the music, like, I mean, he, he really is a genius. Like, he knows what it is. Like, he can hear the music before he produces it. He knows exactly what it is. And he works very, very fast, very fast. So even when I recorded with him, you know, I, I fly all the way from New York to L.A. and, we get in the studio, we had like 10 minutes, he's like, you ready? I'm like, yeah, man, that's what I'm here for, you know. And I get in the booth, and, and mind you, my energy, I'm on 10,000. I'm like, I'm excited, <laughs> you know. So I do the poem, you know, and, uh, and and then he was like, man, Jay, do it one more time. He's like, bring it down a little bit and do it one more time because I'm screaming and hollering, I'm going in, you know. And when I finished, he, uh, you know, after I did it the second time, I was ready to do it again. I'm warmed up now. I'm like, okay, I done loosened up. I'm ready to do it again. I'm like, man, I got another one. He's like, no, nah, that's it. I was like, no, nah, man, I can do it better than that. He's like, no, nah, that's it. I was like, man, no, nah, no, nah, I'm telling you, I got a better one than that. He was like, Jay, that was the one. Come on in. So I come in the booth, and, and that's the that's the verse that everybody, everybody hears. But from that moment to just seeing him work, you know, and just seeing these sounds, like he, these sounds are just, just floating around in his mind, and he has a masterful way of, of creating them and putting them together and creating masterpieces. That's wild. I mean, Jay and I sitting back here like whatever, because, you know, it's just, oh, man. So, um, you know, I want to know this. Now, this is going to make our audience laugh. How did the heck did you end up working with Martha Stewart? <laughs> you know, I was, uh, <laughs> that was it's so funny. So I, uh, I did some work with with college football with ABC. They they had me. I did actually did the introduction for the Orange Bowl back in the day when Reggie Bush and Adrian Peterson were playing, and and then I did some other work. And then I ended up doing uh, Monday Night Football. And when I was in the studio uh, recording the the piece I wrote for Monday Night Football, 
there was another producer there, and she was producing for the Martha Stewart show. And so we met, got cool, and, and, and then uh, one day she called me up. She said, you know, Jay, um, I'm working, you know, Martha Stewart has a show coming on, and she wants, you know, she has, she has, he was Puffy at the time. She's like, she got Puffy coming on the show, or P. Diddy. She's like, P. Diddy's coming on the show, and she wants to do a rap for him when he, when, <laughs> when he comes on the show. Can you write a rap for Martha Stewart? I said, yeah, I can do that, you know. So I wrote this rap for it, and, um, you know, so she's like the the show oh, opens no. and they're oh, no. like before in her you, little garden. Before you keep, before you keep going, you got to do the rap. I'm sorry, you got to do that rap. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I, I know she like uh, what it says. I'm like, uh, my my name is Miss Martha. I'm from Jersey City. Um, I I run uh, what did it say? I run something like he run the city, and then Puffy in the back like, uh huh, yeah. That's right, <laughs> you know. So it was it was this cool little this cool little rap that she did. She did it good too. She can flow. Martha got flow. <laughs> wow. She got she got bars. Martha got bars. <laughs> oh man, that oh god, that's so cool. Well, Jay, I know you okay, have so, the next question for. Oh 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 my goodness! So you went from Martha Stewart to Jay Z. <laughs> <laughs> what was the difference working with Kanye West and Jay and Jay Z? Do they have like different flows, different styles, different feels, vibes? Uh, you know, it, what what's the difference? What's the... man? You, I think man. Well, for me, like the record when I when I did the record, it was already done, so I wasn't in the studio with Jay. But you know, just I don't know. Like they're both masters at what they do. You know, like like. Jay is a lyrical technician. You know the the words, the, the wordplay he puts together is is. I mean, he's one of the greatest to ever do it. You know, so you know just to be a be a, a fan of his music and his style and his work, man, and and see all the doors that he's been able to break down has been incredible. And then then Kanye, you know, he he's done. He, he's a master in his own right. He's he's knocked down a lot of doors that that people didn't think was possible. You know, a lot of people, you know, I got to see Kanye from, from the perspective of we all knew he was a great, 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 great MC, but, you know, people wanted to keep him in that producer box because he was a great, 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 great producer, so they wanted to keep him in that box. But So to see, you know, I was able to see more Kanye's fight. You know, I was able to see, you know, him more more to climb. And, you know, I met him back in Chicago, so, I knew him earlier on when he was rapping in his group called the Go Getters, and you know, so I was able to see more with Kanye. But Jay, he, as far as difference, I, I don't know, you know, that maybe personality, you know, style, you know, but uh, I mean, both are in, incredible, both great, both it, are you know the it, greatest it, to ever do it. it. Is it a different flow from the Shy Town thing than the Brooklyn thing? I mean, is it is it totally yeah. different styles or? Wow. Yeah, you know, Could we got elaborate a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we 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 me being from Chicago and then having the opportunity to live in New York, you know, you're able to see the difference. Like, you know, for, for even the way we speak, you know, we got a different twang. You know, like Chicago, a lot of our folks are from from Mississippi, from the South, so we we had that Southern twang, and and you know, the way we come up and just the, the makeup of the city, it, it really cultivates and and sharpens your skills a certain way. And then we had like some of the hardest crowds. Like Chicago, you man, you gotta impress folk when you get on the stage. There, it's people they they work hard, and when they spend their money to come see you, you better impress them. Mm-hmm. You know, so well, that, wow. so that, that, that just, they better yeah, be it better just trains you up to be. 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like that. Like, you really have to be on your A game, you know, so that it just sharpens your skills. And then, you know, come out here to New York and just see see the makeup of Brooklyn and, and you know, hear the background and, and you know, see cats hustling. You know, it, it's similar in ways, you know, like we know, you know, as far as big cities, big urban urban cities, you know, the, the hoods and, you know, projects and all that, like, you see the struggle. You see, you see uh, a lot of the same makeup. But then, you know, you, you hear. You know, I didn't know how uh, culturally diverse, you know, New York was. In Chicago, like I said, it's it's very segregated. They they even call it hyper segregation. So we're, you know, everyone's kind of to themselves. New York, it was a culture shock coming out here and being on the train and seeing everybody from all walks of life on the train, or me going to a club, and everybody from all walks of life was in the club. It wasn't just all black. Like, when I went to the club in Chicago, it was all black. You know, or if you went to a white club, you were, like, one of two other <laughs> black dudes in the club. You know, <laughs> so it, so to come out here, you know, you're seeing everyone intermingling and everybody working together and grinding together. So it's, so I think that, that plays into, you know, the, the different styles and, you know, and the creativity that 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 we draw from, you know. So it was, it's um, I love I love that it's different too. Like you know, everybody has that story. Everybody has that you know, the you know those differences and where they come from, how they came up. So it's, I, mean, I love it. I love seeing the differences and then seeing the differences come together and collab. Man, it's, it's a work of art. Well, one thing I want to get into, wow. we're gonna you know, because I know we don't have a lot of time left, but we got a couple of questions and. This is the part that we really have to get into because it's about your book. So we're going to get a little serious audience right now. You know, Jay, you work okay. with um, – oh, let me do Jay Ivey. Sorry. I got the Jays going on here. Jay <laughs> Ivey, you work with people from Martha Stewart. You've done commercials. You know, you gave John Legend his name, Death Poetry John, you know, Jam, NFL, Kanye West, Jay-Z, your books. Now you have a book out called Dear Father, Break It in Cycle. You grew up with a single mother who's obviously done a good job with you and her son. I said that the first day I met you. During your time moving up and navigating through all of this amazing career, what was missing for you in, in, in youth and to the man you are now that had you write this book about Dear Father, Breaking the Cycle? And I'm, I'm, I got a little more to say about that. You know, I'm a woman who grew up with a mother who sent her, her son to Cornell, and, you know, sent me to college as well. And, you know, I know that for me that my mom was a caregiver. You know, you learn to take care of, you know, because that's what you watch your mother do. And my mother was an amazing woman, but it affected her, and it affected us not having our our dad. And I remember my, fa- my mm-hmm. brother saying something you did when he had his first daughter. He has three girls. They're in school. They've been to China and back. But one of the things that he said, called my mother up, and he found out that his wife was pregnant, and it brought tears to my eyes when my mother told me. She said, he said, Mommy, I know how to, I know what to do for a woman, but I don't know how to be a father. And the one thing I loved about my mother, she said, your father has died. You can learn from your grandma, grandfather, your uncles, but I can only be your mother. And I can't tell you from a man's perspective but I will point you with all of the men in your, around you so that you learn, okay? But I never forget that he called from a payphone crying, like, how do I be a father to my children? Mm. You know, because I know what it is to take care, but I don't know. I know what it is, but I don't. 
And so as a man growing up through this cycle of being without your father now, meeting him, he's gone, you write this, dear father, how do you break the cycle? My dad is still alive. I didn't meet him until I was 26. But we don't have the closest relationship. So I want to know, like, how has it been for you, a youth, growing up into a man, and you got the career going on, but in the back of you, did you experience an emptiness or a pain or whatever that was still there, no matter how great things are going? And how did it affect you even being married? It, it has definitely affected me in, in a lot of aspects of my life. The, the the full title is actually Breaking the Cycle of Pain. And pain is one of the things that, I mean, I experienced it on so many different levels from from uh, my college years to my adult years to, you know, just going through bouts of depression and anger and and not knowing how to treat a woman properly because I didn't have that example. You know, father's job, part of a father's job, I believe, is, is, is not only um, uh, providing and protecting, but also providing an example of what it is to be a man and take care of, Take care of well. You have to take care of yourself in order to take care of others. So you know, so just providing that example of what it is to take care of you and yours. You know, so for me, like I always say, like in high school, I had these positive distractions because you know, I had sports, I had my boys, I was kicking it wood, and you know, all these girls I was chasing after, and you know, and then now my you know I started performing, I had the stage, but then when I went away to college, now I'm, I was kind of on this island. You know where I'm. I'm. I'm left to discover who I was, and that's when my poetry really became a, a huge factor because I was. I was just writing poem after poem after poem, and each poem became this reflection of who I was. And the more I were, the more I would write, the more I would see myself. The, the angrier I would get. So, it, you know, because my father wasn't there. You know, so I remember waking up in the middle of the night, punching the walls. You know, and I'm, I was just hurt, mad because. Not only is it me and my older brother, but I have a little brother. So if I'm going through this, what is my little brother going through? You know, what is it like for him? Because he had less time with him. You know, is he hurting like I'm hurting? You know, so I was always, I would, I would find myself just going through these, through these, these, these bouts with pain. And you know, that's like I said earlier. You know, I, I had to have that conversation with my cousin about about forgiving because. You know, the pain it was, it was it was weighing me down. It was holding me back. It was like I wanted to spread my wings, but you know, it's one thing to spread your wings, but you ain't getting too far when you got a, a anchor attached to your ankle. You know, you're not going nowhere. You you sprinting in place. You know, and I didn't want to continue to do that. And habitually, a lot of times we we do it because we're unconscious to 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 that pain. We're unconscious to the to the to the habits that have been formed to you know from from the 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 confidence has been lost to the worth of self has been lost to um like even for me like you know being in school I'm in college and I I lost my lack of focus you know I couldn't I couldn't concentrate out you know I was I was I was hurt so I fell in depression so I stopped going to class I stopped going to work and then the next thing I know I'm I'm home I flunked out I flunked out of school and now I'm even more disappointed because I disappointed my mama and wasted her money. Who did she didn't work two, three jobs for to save up her money to put me through college? But she didn't want to. She didn't want to get student loans, so she's like, "I'm gonna pay your way to go through college." And then I get, I get there, and, and now I'm catching feelings and, and hurt, and, and these emotions are just weighing me down. So now, you know, it it it, 
it, it hurt, but then at the same time, I didn't want to disappoint my mother. You know, even and my mother, she's like the greatest, greatest person, greatest woman. I mean, she's just she's an angel. Like she's like my mama, man. Love my mama. She to this day, she's always you know still raising me up and teaching me. But at the same time, like you know, like your brother said, like you know, or your mother said, is only she can tell, she can always advise me, but it's she can't tell me what it is to be a man because she isn't one. You know, she can't teach me what it is to, what, what manhood is because. She is in one. She can teach me about womanhood, but that doesn't apply. You know, she can take some of the lessons that she's learned in her life and, and pass them on, but there's certain things that 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 are missing because she she just doesn't know to give it. You know, she she nurtures and she gives what she can, but there's other things that she doesn't know. So for me, like I like I like your like your brother, I I learned from you know, my grandfather and my uncles and my, my boys' fathers, you know, their fathers took me, would take me under their wings. I would have, you know, my guys, you know, I learned from them because they had fathers in their lives. So I learned through the lessons that they were taught. And I learned from, you know, uh, some, some, of the, some of the guys I met in college who were like big brothers to me and they would teach me certain things, you know. So, you know, I had to learn from, from you know, other people, but it always hurt that my father wasn't there. You know, it hurt. And it really, I really had to get to that, to that, to that crossroad of forgiveness. I had to let go because, you know, it was like I would take two steps forward and five steps back, and I was tired of taking them steps back because I know that life is only so long as a blink of an eye, and I want to make the most of it. I want to fulfill my purpose. I want to, you know, live in my passions. I want to live in love instead of fear. You know, so I always, you know. I, I prided myself on moving forward, but you know, through writing poetry and just having those moments and of of self reflection, I was able to be able to see myself, and I was able to be able to to begin to apply those the good qualities to my life and and not be not be uh, thrown off by the bad qualities. None of us are perfect, you know, but I, I try and learn from those bad. I always tell people there's no such thing as good and bad experiences because. You learn from every experience. So if you're learning, if you're growing, how is that a bad experience? It may not have been something you want to go through. You know, I wish my pops was there. I really, really, really do. I wish he was there for all those moments I had questions and I needed advice and I didn't know where to turn. I wish my pops was there. He wasn't, but I was able to learn from that. You know, I was able to learn from it. And even through 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 me writing this, this poetry and, and just finding this, this forgiveness, me and my pops, we were able to connect, and, and, and even spiritually. Like even with my book, my book, my pops, he he passed November fifteenth of ninety nine, and I was offered a book deal to write a book about my father on November fifteenth of twenty thirteen. So it just shows me just you know once you're able to let go, like the opportunities that are, that will be presented, you know that that'll be there for you, you know, but. But yeah, it, it, I definitely had had my moments, and 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 I always say forgiveness is remembering to forgive again because I can forgive, but then what happens, you know, six months down the road, seven months down the road, when when I see, you know, uh, when I pass a certain landmark in the city, or or uh, I see a certain TV show, or I hear a song, or I smell some food, or or you know, or, or somebody says something that sparks me back and reminds me of my pops. You know, I have to remember to forgive again, so I'm not taking back to that, to that that sad emotional space. I want to remember the good in him, and 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 not get taken back. I don't want to take those steps backwards anymore. 
So it's just a constant exercise, and and it's definitely um you know you always when, when your father isn't there, I feel like every day you're learning on the you, you know you you just learning on as you go, you learn as you go. I and mean, I think even if your father is there, you're gonna have still have that. You're still gonna learn each day, but um but yeah, it, it, it was tough. It was definitely tough to say the least. Okay, God, interesting, interesting. Uh, yeah, interesting. you know, like 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 Gail, I grew up with a single mother, and she was amazing. But I'm sure it was hard for her also. It affected me as well, um, being without my dad. Did Did you have an opportunity to meet your father, and how did this, did this inspire you to write or not to write about the subject of your father? Yeah, we um. Like so, when I was young, like like I said, my pops he was there when I was young and, until my folks got divorced. And I remember the last phone call that I had with him back then was he called me up um, and he told me he he was pleading with me to not you know be out in the streets. And the reason he was pleading with me is because he had another son that was recently murdered. So he called me. He's like, yeah. He's like, you had a brother that died. And I don't want to see the same thing happen to you. So part, I'm like, well, I had another brother because he was two years older than me. So I think I was like 12, 13 at the time. So he had been like 14, 15, something like that. So I'm just blown away. I'm like, I never knew I had another brother. So my mind, what he looked like, what would be funny, did we look alike? Did, you know, it was, what was his name? <laughs> you know, I didn't even think to ask my mm-hmm. pops his name. You know, so... Um, that was the last phone call we had. About ten years went by, and it was that point when my my cousin Julia, you know, she told me that 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 valuable lesson of forgiving. And I remember I was at this youth revival at, in church, performing, and one of my buddies he was performing. He sings, and he he, he uh, we performed together. We, I did a poem, he sang, and then he went back up to sing again. And he gave his testimony about his sister passing away, and then me seeing him. Um, seeing his pain that he was dealing with, seeing his void in his life, it reminded me of my pain and my void. And I remember just breaking down in church, and I'm, I mean, just bawling out of control. I fell to the floor, and and I just, I was just begging God. I said, God, I'm not, I'm not mad at my dad anymore. Cause, you know, he was still alive at the time. I was like, I'm not mad at him anymore. I was like, I just want to see him. I was like, I forgive him. I was like, I just want to see him. I want to tell him I miss him. I want to tell him I love him. I was like, please, God, please, please, please. This was a Thursday. Two weeks later, on a Thursday, my father, after 10 years, called me out the blue. Called me out the blue. Wow. And it was just, I mean, it was just such a moving, I mean, I can't even describe how how, how moved I was. I mean, it brought me to tears. I, I mean, I was crying oceans that day. And my, I remember my mother, she, she walked in the room when he called and I, when I was on the phone with him. And, she, you know, she see her son, her baby on the floor you know, balling out of control. So she she goes into motherly defense mode, like, well, who are you talking to? And I was literally choked up. I was like, uh, uh, and I couldn't, you know, so she kind of, she runs over to me, she snatched the phone, and I just grabbed her. And she's like, who is this? And then as soon as she heard his voice, of course she knew who it was, you know, and she's like, oh, man. She was like, you don't know how much you hurt these boys. You know, and then she, she talked to him for a minute. She let me get myself together. She's like, you, you're all right to talk? I was like, yeah, I'm good. And I got myself together and I talked to him. And I'm like, man, Dad, Dad, I miss you. I love you. And when I first, when he first, when I first picked up the phone, when the tears first started pouring out, he was like, oh, man, don't do that. He was like, don't do that. You know, and he was just, 
you know, he was just, he was hurt, you know, and I, and I know there's a lot of reasons why he was hurt. Like, he, for me, my pops, when he was four, his mother passed away with him in her, her arms when she passed, you know, and then his father, you know, he split, and two weeks later he moved off with his mistress, so then he, he my pops and his, his oldest sister and brother, they were raised by, you know, his grandmother, and his grandmother was very abusive, so his childhood, he came up very hurt. You know, and as as human beings, we look at parents as just indestructible. You know, they're, they're these superheroes. We don't look at them as human beings with feelings and emotions until we get a little older and we start to experience life. And like, oh, okay, so I'm now I'm the age that my pops was when this was going on. I I get it now. I can I, I get how life can throw you these curveballs, and you don't know how to how to deal with 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 these these challenges that come your way. You know, so for my pops, like you know, he we reconnected, and um, I remember that it it was it was a Thursday, and I was sick, so I waited a couple of days to get better, and that Sunday I went and I and I met up with my pops, and it was, I mean, it was just, it was it was uh, <laughs> it was an experience, you know. I, my pops, he opened the door, and I'm expecting this giant, because last time I saw him, that's what he was to me. He was a giant. He towered over me. I was a little boy, you know. Now I'm towering over him. And I could see by looking at him, he like he he was like fifty nine, sixty at the time, but he looked like he was like eighty. You know, life had just beat him up. You know, he had a hard life. And um, but I was man, he opened that door, and I I hugged him, and I told I said I miss you, I love you, Dad. You know, and and just had that moment. It was it was just I cherished that moment so much. You know, we went to his apartment, this little small apartment, living by itself, and we watched the Bears game. I'm from Chicago, so we, the football game was on. So. You know, we did how we did when I was little. We watched the Bears game, and I like I really, really cherished that moment so much, and especially because a year and a half later he passed away. You know, so it was it was uh, I was so happy. I feel so grateful because I know there's a lot of people out here and their fathers still living. Some don't know their fathers. Some their fathers. Some fathers may be locked up. Some, you know, there's a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different situations that that people are that they're they're in. Um, but for me, I, I, I was so grateful that I had the opportunity to see my father, look him in the eye and say, I love you. Because at the end of it, in spite of everything, in spite of the pain, in spite of, in spite of um, him not being there, in spite, of, in spite of all of it, that this was my father. He, you know, he, he did his job. He got me here. He got me here. You know, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that, that, that I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm able to experience life. I have breath in my lungs and I'm able to, to walk. I'm even grateful, you know, I always tell people it's weird to say, but, you know, God gave me this gift, this beautiful, beautiful gift, and and I'm able to use it how, how I see fit. And if I hadn't gone through this moment, I wouldn't have been able to write this story, a story that can so many other people. You know, I, I, like I said, I, I did this poem, you know, on deaf poetry, and it took a lot of courage to write it. It took a lot of courage to share it. Like, it was, you know, it was just, it was really hard to do to you know, they say, man, like, you know, you, if somebody, you know, told me before, man, Jay, you, you shouldn't be so so vulnerable, man. Like, you wearing your heart on your sleeve, you shouldn't be so vulnerable. But I feel like I find that there's so much strength in vulnerability. You know, there's so much strength when you're just able to let go and say, oh, look, this is who I am, this is what I've gone through, and this is where I'm at now. I'm standing on mine, you know. And so I went out and I, perform, I was performing, I did on that poetry, and, and I, I get these comments and these, you know, the feedback and the other, like, Last Monday, I get an email from this young guy. He, he, and the, the message said, "Thank you for saving my life." 
He's like, man, my my father, and he went, he goes into the message saying his father committed suicide in 2012, and and his his him and his mother don't have the best relationship, and he was thinking about committing suicide until he came across this video of their father, and now he and he he's just reaching out to thank me for sending this for for putting this this poetry out there because it saved his life and he and he wanted to thank me so it's like I see things like that and I'm like okay there's strength and vulnerability you know that we all have the courage you know or we all need to find the courage and we all need to remind each other who we are we all know who we are but we need those reminders along the way you know we need those 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 boosts you know we need that 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 positive nudge to say okay it's gonna be all right so it'll be all right we all go through this. You know, a lot of us go through this, rather. We, we sure do. Right. And, you know, you know, and, um, oh, God, we could go on with you. We have, you know, we had some more questions, but what we're going to do is nail it down to, to two because we know the timing is gone. We don't want Atari to kill us. So, <laughs> okay. <it's> all um, good. <laughs> it, what, what I want to say is um, we're going to get into a discussion, and then we're going to ask you just to let people know about what the Dear Father Initiative is and, what you think uh, youth of all ages can gain. We want to get into a discussion myself and Jay a little bit with you for about five minutes, if if that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this, well, you know what, let's ask you about the Father Initiative, if you, if you could give us to that real quick in, in, in a short thing, Dear Father Initiative. Okay, so the the book, after writing the book, it, the, the poem was turned to a book. It, we felt it, it was important to to create this movement called DearFatherLetters.com, DearFatherLetters.com. And the theme is one million letters written, one million hearts healed. So our our goal is is to have people, no matter uh, race, creed, age, no matter if the relationship with your father is good, bad, or ugly, we want people to write a letter to their father and let's start this dialogue and this conversation. Let's start healing. And and the big reason for that was because of the experience that I was able to to go through and witness and see the effects of the the power of forgiveness and of uh, expression and putting your feelings on page. I was able to to write this poem and 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 seeing the healing I got from it, and then going out and performing and seeing the healing that it it allowed others to attain. We we felt that it was super important that we extend that movement. We we create this movement and and we uh, we start something that that everybody can be involved in and we can all start healing together and and, and continue this conversation and this dialogue. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm gonna tell you, um, Jay and I were gonna get into just a little dialogue with you. You know, so you know, going back to what Jay and I shared with you, you know, as a woman. You know, and Jay can share it with you as a from a man's point of view. You know, growing up with a mother, I come from a good family. Both Jay and I come from great families. You know, mm-hmm. glad to say that we're not, you know, poor. Your mom really wasn't poor. We, you know, hardworking families. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, here yeah. it is during that time. My mother is, you know, working and taking care of two children. When in those days, my mother was the only one in the family uh, not married. Okay. And mm-hmm. that that wasn't okay because in my family you got married and you had two point one kids and you went to college and education <laughs> and the whole bit. Right. So from my mother growing up during that time, you know, she's kind of getting pressure indirectly from my grandmother saying, "Oh, it's okay." My grandmother and grandfather saying, "It's okay. We understand." But on the outside, you know, it's not okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And 
I met my father at 26, and it was really, really hard. You know, the first thing was I cried, and then I was angry, and then he has a wife, okay, who has mm-hmm. a child that he looks at her child as more of his daughter than me, and I'm his only daughter. So what mm-hmm. I have to understand is something you said, and I still have to deal with it because we don't have the greatest relationship right now. Um, it's not bad. It's not. It's just that we don't. When you don't grow up together, you don't know that person. And I had an amazing mother. Right. She never said anything about our father. She said, what happened between he and I or between he and I? Your relationship is separate. Get to know him from there. And mm-hmm. But my father and I was hard because, as you said, the way he grew up, he grew up with a father that would beat him to death if he didn't stand up. You hmm. know, he came from a well-to-do family, but if he didn't stand up, you know, it's it is. He's a punk, he's a kid, he, you know, whatever. And my father was, a, you know, kind of like a sensitive man. And so he would be beaten to death. So he, he had a, there's a harsh side and a very caring side. But he also didn't want to disturb things with his now wife, who he had this child by, who she had issues with her daughter's father. And I say all of this mm. to say, not putting my personal business, being an adult, and, and there's other kids who are going out there across all cultures, Okay. Every time I would always feel that emptiness. There's an emptiness right. that one can't even understand or begin to understand. And you put you become this, you know, like Jay and I are pretty well known in our circles. You become well known in your circles, but there's still that emptiness. And I finally got to a point in my life that so I'm not interested in all this work I do. I'm a workaholic. I'm interested in loving my family and being with my family. Mm-hmm. I saw how it affected my brother when he really wanted to have his, you know, a father there. And he he didn't know what to do, you know. And he's trying to figure that out. And and you end up being a caregiver for everybody else because all you know how to do is take care. That one half of you that's missing, the one that says, hey, honey, you can do it, you're my princess, or telling your, your son, showing him how to be a man. That That is something that a father gives that your grandfather, your uncles can give, but it's nothing like it. That's why when you meet your father and your mother, oh, this is really getting me, you become whole. Like mm-hmm. you get really whole as a human being. And that never changes. You could be 90 and it could be 110. So that's right. important that I want to say to our mothers and fathers out there that when you are thinking about a divorce or whatever, is not say work it out for the children because no one believes in that these days. Because you have to show your your son and your daughter that you can be happy. But if you choose that route, have the best friendship possible right. so that you you can carry out, their children can see that even when life doesn't work out the way you want, you don't have to tear each other down. Because when you tear mm. each other down, you tear apart the inside of the children that came from you. Right. You know, so I just want to, you know, and, and I wanted Jay to share his part. And you just tell us, you know, what you think, that, how this affects people with your initiative and how this affects you. So, you know, Joe, Jay, please, you know, share your where you are as well, please, before we have um, um, Jay Ivey share his last piece before leaving. Okay, I'm, 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 it's so wonderful that you have this father initiative. I, I just want to say it's, it's just great that somebody like you have done something like this because I, you know, I, that letter that you've written, I am so interested in it. Now, I'm, I'm a little different. Um, me, my father, uh, 
is a famous musician, and he left. Uh, my mom left him, and they had some some serious issues. My mom kind of fled, and so I didn't have a father. Um, I had his gift. I had his gift, but I didn't have him. Hmm. So I told right. myself, when I grow up, because I'm kind of like in a place in between both. I'm in between you and Gail. So I told myself, when I grow up, I'm going to have me a son, and I'm going to be a father. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I lost my son when he was 14. He was tragically, horrifically lost. Oh, and so God. now I don't have a father, and then I can't be a father. But, I, you know, I have some oh. daughters, but it's different when you have sons. So I can't be a father yeah. to a boy. And then I didn't have a father. So I'm like in this little void. It's like a little void. It's like really, I'm like stuck. And at this point in my life, I'm not going to have another son. I'm like, I'm so hurt, devastated by not having a father. And now not having a son, I'm just totally just devastated. But hmm. I want to say, this diff- it's the difference between having a father, a dad, and a pop. See, everybody hmm. can't be a father. See, a father is something that is, some, is somebody that's dear to you and that raises you and, and mentors you. And that's a father. You know, you can have a dad, you can have a pop, but pops and dad might not be home. They might not be there all the time. But a father right. is somebody who's your father, who you can look up to, you can your eyes, you can look up to him with your eyes when you're a little kid. That's my father. And, you know, and it's a difference. I just want to say, that to the people out there, because you can be a dad, you can be a pop, but to be a father, you don't, you don't always have to be related to a person to be a father. You don't have to be. Amen. You can be a father figure. That's, that's true. So I just wanted to say that. I just want I wanted to put that out there. So that, I, I don't want to take up all the time. We, I can go into the whole thing, but I want to just put that out there and just tell you where I'm in between both of you guys. And you know, Jay, I think all of us, including Jay Ogden, we're all in the same place because Excuse my expression, and 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 if there's any youth listening, I'm sorry to say it this way, but it's the truth. Uh, a man, a woman can give her egg, and a man can give his sperm. Okay, but that doesn't make you a mother, and that doesn't make you a father, because just as men um, abandon their children, so do women. Okay, and I think for a woman and a man, we think that our mothers and fathers, when they abandon or, you know, we have to realize something that Jay Ivey said earlier, they're human beings. My mother passed away two and a half years ago, so you can imagine, Jay, when we met each other, mm. I shared with you that she had passed. Yeah. And I don't, you know, it's not about feeling sorry for Jay or I because we're adults, I'm an aunt, um, I plan on adopting with my husband at some point. And the bottom line of this is that, when you give your heart and your soul to someone, you know, and you love them, that's all that matters. And Jay and I have done very well, and we, we are mothers and fathers to other children, you know. We mentor them. We may not be able to be there with them 24 hours, but the one thing, that's why Jay and I have dedicated our time to youth because, you know, we say youth is tomorrow, but I'm, and Jay will tell you, I'm sick of that because when I talk to young people, whether they're the smartest people or or whether they're still learning or they have learning issues that they have to overcome, the one thing they're tired of hearing is the media and us saying, you know what it really is? It's intergenerationally people who are 35 and above are scared of losing their standing because 62% of the population today are youth. And what you do hmm. by telling youth that they're the future is what we're telling youth is that, okay, you can tell us what to do. I'm sorry. No, you can't. You have to learn and gain the wisdom, and that only comes 
with age. You cannot make, and it depends on the culture, because in Western culture, we don't raise our youth the way to say the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama, from a child, was in his culture, was being set up from the day he was born out of his mother's stomach to be set up to learn how to rule. So wisdom came in an early age for him, whereas for our youth in Western civilization, it comes with experience and age. So we, Hmm. you know, there are youth in Africa that see people hacked to death or in the Middle East where they're, you know, called into battle. I mean, so everything is relative, but at the end of the day, even in those cultures, there are many aunts and uncles that govern how they grow up. Aunties and uncles are very prevalent in in uh, cultures outside Western culture. Bringing this back in is that there's still, even with that, you can have 20 uncles, 20 aunts. When you meet that mother and when you meet that father, no matter how they were, they were abandoning you or the worst people or the greatest, you become whole in that moment. Because there's something that's a connection to you that you cannot erase. So I just want to say that to our youth that we all are in that place. And, yes, we do get, you know, hurt and upset. That's the only reason we can relate. So that's why when you think that Jay Ivy or myself or Jay is so old and we don't know, yes, it's joking, but intergenerationally we have got to connect with our youth because the youth are innovative and and the older can give wisdom. But we have to stop placing an unfair burden on our youth saying, you are the future and all that. Yes, they're the future, but let them have their future the way they want to create so that they can have their own roadmap to their own path like you have, Jay Ivan, all of us have. So with that said, we want to ask you to just take us on out on what do you want youth and people of all ages to gain from your initiative and your book and your work? I want people to to be able to find that healing. I always say, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but if you can't love yourself, you can't love others properly. You know, if I if I can't find that true, genuine love for myself, then how am I going to love my wife or my future children or my my family I, I, or, or friends or the community? You know, so it's very important that, that we're able to to find that healing, to get through that pain, to accept what is, and to work on where we want to go. And that that's really the the core of, of, of everything with, with, as far as their father, their father letters. I want people to find that healing and, just, and forgive, forgive and let go because, you know, that pain, it, it takes up space. You know, it takes up space in our spirit that we aren't allowed to, we we aren't allowed to uh, accept the blessings that come in, you know. So we have to make room for those blessings. Uh, I want people to find their joy, find their happiness, you know, and just uh, just man, just live a, a good life. Because, like I said, you know, we we're not here forever. You know, it's a blink of an eye. You know, so we have to be appreciative of, of every moment that that we're blessed with. And and make the most of it. And and to Jay, I mean, my deepest condolences to you. Um, I, I know I know your son's spirit is is heavy in in your heart, and I mean that in a light way. I know he's he's with you every single day, and and the same with you know with our parents. I know that they're still with us. You know that's why I made mention of that November fifteenth note earlier. You know because I feel like my me and my father we were we were. The, the emptiness that I was feeling, that half that I that I felt that I was missing, 
I felt spiritually I was able to gain that half, and now I feel whole. You know, so it's just a, it's about learning and, and continuing to move forward. And I, I wanted to do um, a piece of a poem before before we left, if that's all right. And, I think and, this and, poem kind of. And, and and we would love for you to do that. Before you say that, you know, Jay Ivory and Jay, one of the things I just wanted to say to you, um, you know, Jay has gone on to perform and do things like his dad. And, you know, I write myself, and the the song I just want to share with our audience that Jay Ivory, you know, was so graciously decided that Jay Logan, oh, God, this is the Jays, <laughs> Jay and I put together was, 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 was never alone. Jay Ivory uh, is in a critical part in that in that um, video that you will see. And Jay Ivory knows I went through, and Jay Logan knows I went through twenty five singers. You know they were like Gail, come on, you know. And um, things I wanted to say regarding that is that I had the opportunity to write with thirty other writers, uh, Jay internationally, uh, a book. Uh, I'm an author as well about my mother that gave me healing. And Jay had a way of performing, Jay Logan had a way of performing that created some of the healing for him. And I just want to implore all youth out there, adults included, to please, like, you know, write. Write is the most healing thing you can do. Sing. Whatever gives you healing. Some people like to plant plants around their home. I'm talking about young and old. Some people like to do step dancing. You know, whatever works for you doesn't have to be healing, but whatever gift you have, use it. And, and you know, like Jay Ivey has, he's making a difference with the world, but this shows you a young man who's making a difference with the world. And I just wanted to say that. So, Jay, without further ado, um, please give us your piece. Thank you. True life may seem at an all-time low. You've tried everything, but you can't seem to find your flow. So success comes slow and problems tend to grow. You've seen your friends shine like it's 100 degrees while you're chilling at 10 below. It's cold out here. It's freezing. The bad times are increasing. Bad energy is all that your surroundings are releasing. So misery's been feasting on your soul. Vices grab hold and loads get heavy. You feel so heavy, but you can't block your blessings. When they come your way, you got to be ready, ready to receive. You got to shake off the fear and believe. Because at times we're tested, tested to see how strong we really are, how far we really go. There's an army growing, but you can't join unless you know what you're fighting for. Because if you stand for nothing, you fall for anything. So stand tall. Know that you can't walk until you crawl. You can't run until you walk. You can't fly without a running start. So pump your arms when you come off the blocks. And it won't do you no harm to come off your block. Get out and see the world because everyone has their own mountaintop. It wasn't promised to a few, but promised to those who knew. So climb the way you breathe and never stop. Inhale your best. Exhale the BS. Keep on keeping on. See where you're going and work on getting there. Don't hate on others when others get theirs because you go get yours. You go knock down your own doors. Know that God go take care of you and yours. That's why miracles happen out of the blue. So know that and remember that can't nobody stop you but you. Because dreams don't come true. They are true. So dream big. Then after that, dream even bigger. So big that Martin and Coretta are up in heaven holding hands, smiling down on us with a tear in their eye and joy in their heart. 
saying amen, amen, amen. Well, with that, I, I have no more to say other than listen, give, listen, give, and support. Thank you. And um, if it's okay, Jay Ivy, we're going to announce this. Jay Ivy, we had promised him that he would. Um, there's certain things we would do with him with listen, give, and Jay Ivy and his wife have agreed to be partners with us on getting his book out there and spreading what listen, give is up to with youth. So you will find him at j-ivy.com, and you will also find him shortly on listengive.org. So with that said, Mr. Logan, do you want to take us out, please? Well, real, real quick, yes. I'm sorry. Hit, hit me up on Twitter and Instagram, too. I'm, I'm the letter J underscore Ivy Y, J underscore Ivy, and, on, and I'm on Facebook, too. But thank you all, too. So, Jay Logan, would you take us out? We, I sure would. Thank you, J.I.B. And, Gail, we would like to say thank you to our listening audience. Uh, listen, Gail, this has been a great experience. We will see you next week at the same time, same channel. Tune in, and God bless all. Thank you, too. Woo!